News Power Hour. Welcome to the Biz News Power Hour, where we give you the rational perspective on business news that matters. Yeah, very rational tonight. Uh, we're going to be speaking at around about the top of the hour, around about six o'clock with Aldworth Mbalati. If you read the Sunday Times over the weekend, you will see that he's making some very serious allegations against Energy Minister Gwedi Mantash. Uh, Aldworth owns a company um, which is, uh, well, was one of the bidders, a company called DNG Energy. It was a bidder for the round of independent power project emergency uh, 2000 megawatts that needs to be added to the grid as soon as possible he was told that unless he crosses certain palms with silver he would not get the bid and indeed we now know that the Turkish um, company called car power ship highly controversial uh, Boats that are sitting off the shore of South Africa, taking natural gas, apparently from who knows where, imported presumably, did get the bid. And Mr. Aldworth Mbalati is taking DME to court. Big story. We'll hear from the man himself. On a happier note, over the weekend, it was the Berkshire Hathaway AGM. And Justin, you've been uh, listening to how many hours of the four? I have been very intently. Um, it was sporadic. Uh, I looked at the highlights and I, I, I watched those sections. It was it was fascinating and, and great to see Warren and Charlie at their tender ages of 1997, respectively, answering all shareholder questions. We will have clips on three of those. David Shapiro and I have been to Berkshire uh, a number of times to the AGMs, so no one could be better positioned, Mr. Shapiro, than you to talk about the crummy hotels that are uh, <laughs> at ridiculously priced. I mean, you think about that horrible little Holiday Inn hotel we stayed in where mm. you're on the railway line and uh, a crossing with big trucks, so you don't get a heck of a lot of sleep, and the cost was $400 which translated into six and a half thousand rand for, um, that's how the profiteering goes on in Omaha. So at least no one was profiteered uh, by <laughs> this time around. In fact, in fact, Buffett used to complain about it. You know, he did say that uh, Omaha takes advantage of the, I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 people that do come and all the hotels. We stay, I used to stay in the, I did stay in the Holiday Inn and later on we stayed at a, I can't remember what it was called, the landmark or something like that, which was a, a nothing more than a Not hotel. a landmark. <laughs> I can't remember. You know, it, it was within walking distance, and there was a, a sports cafe, which was down there. That's where we stayed, the same place mm-hmm. where Koki Koeman used to book us oh, in every yes. year. Yeah, with oh, a, right. it's, it's the lowest mm-hmm. grade of the holiday in group. Yeah. And it's, you want to, oh, okay. Remember, <laughs> you, you, you want to eat, mm-hmm. it's got a vending machine. And the, in the vending machine right. and no, <laughs> no microwave to eat up your food. I mean, we, we ordered a, a salad. Uh, I know that, that was another place, but we ordered a salad to take out, to come in. And their salad was just lettuce. Nothing else. Yeah. Just lettuce. Anyway, we will talk more about the non-profiteering Berkshire Hathaway because it was all done, uh, through online this year from San Francisco because Charlie, as you said, at the tender age of 97, can't travel, doesn't want to travel anymore. So Warren had to travel to San Francisco uh, for the very first AGM of Berkshire outside of Omaha. And it was interesting also uh, the incumbent, Greg Abel, who's said to be the CEO um, incoming after after Warren, he also got introduced to shareholders, which was nice to see, and he also did a lot of answering. So good news for Berkshire shareholders that they seem to be in good hands. Well, Greg and Ajit Jain are kind of the two contenders. And Ajit is from India originally. Warren loves him so much that he went off to India to go and buy Indian businesses, arrived there, was there for two days and realized that uh, the way they do business in India is not congruent with the way that Berkshire Hathaway does business. And he came home, like straight off. Alec, if you watched all four hours, you would have seen the hints that um, Charlie was dropping uh, with regards to Greg. So, so I think that's where I'm coming from more. So I do understand that it's a two a two-way race, but I do think after the comments that I heard from Charlie, 
Greg is um, okay. going to take the mantle. So in other words, Charlie has got Greg's vote. Yes. Um, so Greg, Greg has got Charlie's <laughs> vote. But it's, anyway, we will be hearing some of those clips, and they're, they're really well done, Justin, in, in watching the whole thing and pulling it out. Then we go into Mozambique, talking about gas. We've had a, a lot about energy, and we're going to be talking with Stephen Buchanan-Clark. He's from Good Governance Africa. The we were we've been chatting to, to trying to track uh, Stephen down for quite some time. He's been very busy to and from Mozambique, and um, the story has been very topical for the last month. So great to get him pinned down for this evening, and I look forward to his insights, considering that he was on the ground at uh, in in northern Mozambique at the uh, project, which is now thirty, I think it's thirty billion dollars. Is it project? Stephen's a braver man than I am, Alec. It's been put on hold, uh, the due to the military. Uh, in insurgents from Tanzania uh, who are supposedly a part of uh, Muslim fundamentalists. Anyway, he'll be giving us the full story there, but lots coming up in tonight's program. As always, though, we kick off with the main headlines in our flash briefing. Here's our editor at large, Jackie Cameron. South Africa says a delivery of 1.1 million Johnson and Johnson coronavirus vaccines has been delayed pending further safety checks. This is the latest blow to the country's stop-start inoculation program. The government ordered 31 million of J&J's single-dose shots and planned to begin issuing them to people over the age of 60 from May the 17th. Health Minister William Kieser says that the protracted safety verification process has to be undertaken in conjunction with international regulatory agencies. The South African RAND faces a potentially big week with a U.S. employment report and Moody's country rating review expected on Friday. Treasury One currency strategist Andre Celia says Moody's is unlikely to downgrade South Africa deeper into sub-investment grade. I don't think that we're going to see any downgrades. I think taking the pandemic into account, taking the uh, little bit of growth that we're seeing coming back into the economy, we're seeing quite a resilient stance from the government in terms of the fiscal expenditure, especially when you look at the negotiations going on around the wage negotiations at this point in time, the government seems to be very resilient and seems to be turning on the screws a little bit in spending. And that's definitely something that the Moody's people would look at. Apart from that, we have seen that the collection of revenue looks a little bit better. We have also seen that on the commodity space uh, from the mining houses that they brought in quite substantial profit figures uh, that was reported towards the end of January. And we should not forget that that bodes well for the fiscus as well, because that means that the tax collection would look a little bit better. And as we see spending coming back back on board and people feeling generally a little bit more relaxed, and we are not seeing that massive spending coming in from retailers at at the moment, but it seems to be going in the right direction. That would also bode well for the fiscus in the sense that the tax collection from VAT, etc., would look better. You can listen to the full interview with Andre Salia on BizNews Radio, which is available on all the major podcast channels and has its own dedicated website, biznewsradio.com. Cryptocurrencies were broadly higher on Monday, with Bitcoin climbing above 58,000 US dollars, while Ether jumped 6% in New York. Edward Moyer, a senior market analyst at Oanda, is quoted as saying in a note that Ethereum is rising and not much seems to be in its way. Business premium partner of the Wall Street Journal reports that the NFT craze has put Ethereum, the blockchain-based computer network that backs it, on the map again. NFTs, or non-fungible tokens, are Bitcoin-like tokens with a twist. Only one at a time is created and they aren't interchangeable as currency tokens are. The NFT is connected to a digital work of art or other real-world item, and sold as a unique digital property. Since the launch of the National Basketball Association's Top Shot Collectibles six months ago, NFTs have become a cultural phenomenon. The band Kings of Leon sold NFTs tied to an album release. Twitter chief executive Jack Dorsey auctioned an NFT of his first ever tweet, and digital artist Beeple sold an NFT artwork at Christie's for a record 69 million US dollars. And that brings to a close your BizNews Flash Briefing. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. Well, we're going to hear a little more from Andre Celia uh, later on in this program with our new currency focus uh, brought to you by Treasury One. We'll also be hearing from Clive Nates, who's the chairman of Lincoln City. 
David, I went to Lincoln City to see them getting promoted from League 2 to League 1 in England. They're in a position now where they could get promoted to the championship. They come from non-league. So all round, it's uh, it's quite a big story uh, that Clive Nates is going to be able to tell us about. But we'll be we'll be picking up with him in around about uh, ten to six or so, uh, around about that time. But uh, fascinating, we see Clive on our screen now. If you're watching on YouTube, you can see Clive. How's it, Clive? We'll be talking to you a little bit later. <laughs> okay, but first, let's find out what's going on with the markets. And Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity. And the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Here's Justin Rowe Roberts. The JSE All Share started the week lower at 66,600. Some of the highlights included gold shares were up across the board, the biggest climber being Anglo Gold, up 10 rand to 310 rand a share. Sabanya Stillwater was up 1.5% to 69 rand a share. MTN lost 3.5% to a shade under 88 rand a share. Food retailer, the food retailer you love to hate, Woolies, lost 2.7% to 48 rand a share. And Berkshire Hathaway is up by 2% in New York this morning, following its AGM on Saturday. In the currency markets, the rand weakened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 38 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 03 to the pound, and 17 rand 37 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,794 an ounce as inflation fears linger. Brent crude is up at $68 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 835k a Bitcoin. What's that about? The food retailer you love to ha- I love Woolies. So, so this is where it actually comes from, Alec. Yesterday I was watching something on, on um, Bloomberg and they were saying you want to you wanna own companies that have pricing power. And which company epitomizes that other than Woolies? I just think every time I buy a club, so I mean it's, it's too and more expensive. I, I used to, uh, a former colleague of ours, um, uh, mm, uh, geez, I've forgotten, how's that? Anyway, <laughs> uh, it'll come to me in a minute, but a former colleague of ours used to always tell us that we should never buy Biltong from Woolies because it cost more than a thousand rand a kilogram when you on your way to the till. So you talk about, that. talk about uh, pricing power. I only remember my colleague as Cockroach. I'm sure he's listening. I was thinking, Jesus, you've forgotten me already. Anyway, <laughs> What a nickname. <laughs> well, he was uh, Cockroach was the partner um, of Barry Sargent who called himself Hyena. So uh, yeah. they were our, our two Guys, who, um, Julius Cobbett, Jules, I'm so sorry to have forgotten your name. Just slipped my mind for a minute there. But Julius uh, was also the guy who bought Capitech shares when they were, I don't know, 50 rand or something because he became a Capitech shareholder. So uh, Jules was, uh, was the kind of guy to follow when it came to things like Woolworths, and I'm sure he would agree 100% with you. And this market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. That's a bit embarrassing, David, when you disremember a person by a nickname, and his nickname is Cockroach. (laughs) Jules, his dad was a great value investor, DJ Cobbett. Was on the market for years. Yeah, mm. Julian's a, a a big loss. Julius, rather, is a mm. big loss to financial journalism. He because his dad was mm. such a good investor and such a wealthy guy. I think Julius just manages his property portfolio nowadays. But you know, Clive <laughs> Nates, did you guys ever of work together, Dave? You and Clive? No, he was too important for me. He worked at Liberty, <laughs> and then he was at Peregrine. <laughs> Clive, you you no, obviously of course I've known Clive for a long time. We're going to talk about Lincoln City <laughs> in a little while, but you could also give us some insights. I'm sure about uh, Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger. That's your world. It was my world. Now it's just football. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well. <laughs> Uh, we've, we've had, uh, Justin has been having a look at, uh, the, watch the, the AGM, the Berkshire Hathaway AGM that used to be written in concrete in our calendars, David, you and I, for many, many years. Now it's because of COVID. We, even if we wanted to go, we couldn't go. Uh, also with Charlie at 97 and Warren at 90, the guys are getting on a little. You, you pulled out three really interesting clips. Just tell us about the first one, which is about fear. 
So basically, uh, the shareholder asked the question that in the midst of the March 2020 lows when Berkshire were offloading airline stocks and bank stocks, they were essentially being fearful when people were most fearful. And one of Warren Buffett's most famous quotes is, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy when others are fearful. Um, I thought it was a great question from the shareholder and and I, I thought Warren gave a great answer. And should we play that, did you? This first question that came in, came in from Andy Sees. He says he's the owner of not nearly enough B shares. He says, Mr. Buffett, you're well known for saying to be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. But by all appearances, Berkshire was fearful when others were most fearful in the early months of COVID. Dumping airline stocks at or near the low, not taking advantage of the fear, gripping the market to buy shares of public companies at exceptional discounts and being hesitant to buy back significant amounts of Berkshire stock at very attractive prices. I'd appreciate hearing your thoughts surrounding this time and how Berkshire approached its decision making, specifically after it was assured through the CARES Act that the government would provide a robust backstop to the financial markets. I am just as Charlie is the chief culture officer. I'm, I'm the chief, chief risk officer of Berkshire. That's that's my job. It, uh, uh, we hope we do well, but we want to be sure we don't do terribly. Uh, but we didn't sell a uh, substantial amount. I mean, we, we're a company with six, probably $700 billion worth of businesses. Some we own in, in their entirety, some we own a, a piece of. And I don't know whether we were sellers of maybe 1% of, of the value of all the businesses we had at that period. But the airlines, clearly what happened was not their fault in any way, shape, or form. It wasn't like 2008-9 when people blamed the banks and hated to see them help. So it was, you know, you look at these figures of $2 trillion for Apple and so on. The entire big four airlines, they were they sold for about $100 billion almost. I mean, it's, it's a very, very small combined. They wouldn't come close to making the, the cut. I mean, they wouldn't be in the top 50. Uh, so anyway, uh, they went into the government. They needed a government help or they needed or they could, would go bankrupt. Some of them, they lost perspective earning power. I mean, right now, they're, you know, international travels not come back. But I would say overall to the the economic recovery has gone far better than you could say with any assurance. So we, uh, we didn't like having as much money as we had in banks at that time. So I, I cut back some of the bank investment. But basically our net sales were about 1% or 1.5%. And, and looking back, it, you know, it would have been better, better to be buying. But, but I do not consider it. I do not consider it a great moment in Berkshire's history, but I also don't. Uh, we've got more net worth than any any company in the United States under accounting principles, and we've got we've got six or seven hundred billion of generally good businesses, and uh, and uh, I think as I think I think the airline business has done better because we've sold, and I wish them well, but I still uh, I still wouldn't want to buy the <laughs> buy the airline business. David, so Justin likes what uh, Warren said. What do you think? He, 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 later on, he said that um, the government, you know, they went to government for assistance. And um, they said that if they had known that Buffett or Berkshire were shareholders, they would have said, you don't need our assistance, go to your shareholders. And he didn't want to be seen as uh, as a shareholder, which I think came later. I couldn't pick it up in that clip. But um, there might be validity to that. I think that um, they got it wrong in the sense that they did uh, act on fear and they got out. And I don't know whether it was their decision or whether it was Todd and Ted that made the decision. You know, we, we don't know anymore who actually makes mm. some of the decisions that we discuss later. Clive, uh, do you buy Buffett? He's been preaching to us for years and years and years. As Justin said earlier, let's be greedy when others are fearful. There was a lot of fear around in March, April, and Buffett was selling. Yeah, he got it wrong, but anybody can get it wrong, as we can see in football. The greedy six, <laughs> they also got it wrong. Jeez, didn't David, supports one of them, you know, surely knows that. Mm. Uh, D- Dave, as I was going to say, you, you're 100% mm. right, and it was something that I was going to mention. He clearly said that mm. if they were 
10% shareholders mm. in these airline stocks, which they were, the government would have said, go mm. to Berkshire Hathaway. They've got $150 billion in cash that they're lying on. Go to them for a bailout. But as a result of, of them um, reducing their stake or, or cutting their stake altogether, uh, the government bailout was, was re- pretty much the only option to keep these airlines above water. Wow. Justin, there's also history there as well. You know, um, Buffett has made many comments about the Wright brothers, you know, and about buying airlines. And it was rather odd that he actually bought the airline when he did. So when he said he wouldn't buy it now, I think he's going back to his original view. Alec, you're great with quotes. I can't remember the one that he said about the Wright's bro- Wright brothers, you know, which was. Uh, he said if there were any capitalists around at Kitty Hawk. Uh, they would have mm. shot the Wright brothers there and then mm. because the destruction of value that the airline industry has uh, visited upon mankind has been quite astronomic. We're just going to pick up one more clip from the Berkshire Hathaway AGM, and that's on cryptocurrency. This is a classic. Now that the crypto market overall is valued at $2 trillion, do you still consider cryptos as worthless artificial gold? <laughs> I, I knew there'd be a question on Bitcoin or crypto. And, and uh, I thought to myself, well, I've watched these politicians dodge questions all the time, you know, and, and, and uh, I always find it kind of disgusting when they do it. But the truth is, I'm going to dodge that question because the, we probably got hundreds of thousands of people watching this that own Bitcoin. And we've probably got two people that are short. So we got a choice of making 400,000 people mad at us and unhappy. And or making two people happy, and that's just a dumb equation. So I, I thought about it. We had, we had a governor one time in in uh, Nebraska, and a uh, long time ago. But uh, he would get a tough question. You know, what do you think about property taxes, or you know, what should we do about schools? And and he'd look right at the person. And he'd say. I'm all right on that one. <laughs> you just walk off. Well, I'm all right on that one, and maybe we'll see how Charlie is. Well, those who know me well are just waving the red flag as a bull. <laughs> of course, I hate the Bitcoin success. And I don't welcome a currency that's so useful and the kidnappers and extortionists and so forth, nor do I like just shuffling out a few extra billions and billions and billions of dollars to somebody who just invented a new financial product out of thin air. So I think I should say modestly that I think the whole damn development is disgusting and contrary to the interests of civilization. And I'll leave the criticism to others. <laughs> I'm all right on that one. <laughs> well, I guess uh, we can't top that one, can we? Let's move on to Clive Nates now. Clive, as you heard from David Shapiro, has been in the financial markets in South Africa for many, many years. A few years ago, you decided to get involved in football in England, Clive. We've uh, documented your journey quite well on business uh, coming from non-league kind of a hopeless situation to where you are right now with Lincoln City yourself Ashley Mendelovitz and Sean Melnick three names well known to the South African business community big shareholders in Lincoln City and it's been quite a season for you yeah it has been um, we got a budget that is probably only in the third quartile but uh, we're in the playoffs, which has been an incredible achievement. Uh, also, the youngest squad of all 92 clubs in the Premier League and EFL. Um, a manager, you know, that had his... Well, he came in last season, had the season disrupted by COVID, and has managed to get a much-changed team uh, fighting towards the top of the table. And we were within a couple of seconds of giving ourselves still a chance of automatic promotion going into the final week of the season. So what is a guy who lives in Cape Town, who's been in financial markets in, in, uh, in South Africa his whole life, got to do with 
becoming a, an owner of a football club in, in England. This is supposed to be uh, Russian oligarchs and uh, oil sheikhs from, from, uh, from the Middle East. It's their territory. Uh, yeah, just a correction. Lived in Joburg almost all my life, so not Cape Town. But, uh, yeah, just football crazy uh, from, a, from a kid. And if you're football crazy in South Africa you find an English football team to support. So since the late 1960s, I've been supporting Everton, but I sort of fell in love with all of English football, followed all the different leagues throughout the pyramid. It's always fascinating to see the promotion and relegation battles. And Everton had an alliance uh, with Lincoln City uh, around about 2002, not much came out of it. I just started to follow Lincoln City, and the more that they battled, falling into non-league, the more I took an interest. And having retired from being a hedge fund manager, I decided to take off the number one item on my bucket list and get involved with an English football club. So I sent off an email to Lincoln City at the time that their bank was looking to withdraw their facilities uh, and took off from there. Um, got involved uh, as a director from February 2016, and we've had an incredible run over the last five years. Is it a bit like Moneyball? Many of us have seen the movie with Brad Pitt and uh, as the as the baseball coach in America, who used data and statistics and perhaps coming at it from a different angle to traditional football? Yeah, I don't think it's quite to that extent, but there's a lot more analysis that is now going into the recruitment of players and just everything around the, uh, the sport. So certainly the disciplines that I think I learned as being in the investment world has certainly helped in you know, trying to take the club forward. So, Clive, it's come from kind of no hopers. The banks were going to foreclose on the business, on the on the club. Uh, how how far down did they go? Where was their rock bottom when you you got involved, and and where are you now? Well, they had spent uh, five years uh, in the bottom half of the national league, which is the fifth tier of English football, and the existing manager actually decided to step down towards the end of the 2015-16 season. So it was a chance to get involved with uh, recruiting a new manager. And we managed to hire Danny and Nikki Cowley. Um, they'd done pretty well with some non-league teams. Uh, they, at the time, were just full-time PE teachers. And they decided to go full-time as football managers. And in their first season as full-time football managers with us, they managed to get us promoted uh, out of National League. But probably the most exciting part that changed the future of the club was we had a run to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup, where unfortunately David's team beat us uh, 5-0. But that was the first time in more than 100 years that a non-league team had progressed to the quarterfinals of the FA Cup. And with that came, you know, a significant amount of money uh, from broadcast, revenue, from increased sponsorship, and mostly from playing in front of 60,000 people at the Emirates. And that gave us the ability to fund the team to a better degree when we got into League Two, back into the Football League, and also to build uh, a new training ground. Up to that point, we'd been playing on a school field or training on a school field and at an army barracks. So it was really this, you know, an incredible feat by Dan and Nicky Cowley to get us that far and really changed the future of the club. So now you're in League One. You say you're in the playoffs, which means if you beat the other three clubs who are going to be playing against you in that, will what happens then to Lincoln City? Clearly, would go into the second highest, not the premiership, but the, 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 the championship. What does that mean to the funding of the club or the finances of the club? Do you have to get 
Do you have to dip deeper into your own pocket to get players that would be able to compete there? Or do you get other people to come along and, and, and help you? Well, you know, as I've suggested, we've had a third quartile budget in League One. So we've had a massively outperform because we're up against teams that not that long ago were even in the top flight uh, of English football. So, you know, Sunderland are one place ahead of us on goal difference, although we got a game in hand below us. We got the likes of Portsmouth, Ipswich, Hull City won the league. So they're really big teams we're competing against, and we can't compete against them just on finances. So we have to look at other ways to be better than uh, our finances uh, can dictate. And it's going to be even worse if we get to the championship. I mean, the amount that you would get from the Premier League and from the EFL would increase from about £1.7 million to in excess of £7 million. But the playing budget of the teams in the championship is a multiple of the playing budgets in League One. Um, I was just looking at uh, Swansea City's accounts that came out for the 2019-20 year, and their wage bill is in excess of £40 million. Ours at the moment is £5 million. That's what you're playing with. The huge parachute payments that are paid to teams that are relegated from the Premier League, £46 million in your first year back in the Championship. Uh, we'll have a budget. Yeah, whatever we do, even with you know uh, increased contributions from shareholders and increased sponsorships, it will be in the bottom four or five. So you're going to have to outperform. If you get into the championship, you're going to really, really have to outperform. But what about that? What about raising money? I mean, it's now it's a South African club. <laughs> you guys are there. You South Africans. You, 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 uh, <laughs> Manchester City is, uh, is, uh, is it Dubai or, or uh, anyway, one of the Emirates. Mm. Um, uh, the the uh, Man United would be, uh, is owned by the Americans. My club, West Ham, is owned by the porn stars or the guys who own the porn stars. And th those are the people that you're competing with. So how about doing a, a, a maybe crowdfunding, David, uh, amongst South Africans? And we can say, well, at least South Africa has got a, a, a representative in, in the professional leagues in, in, South Africa, in uh, the UK. Yeah, uh, it, it's such a remarkable story. It's just... It's it's Roy of the Roses, Rovers stuff. This is the Magnet or in all those magazines, and I just I just hope that uh, someone comes to Clive's rescue and that they're able to parachute that money in, because I mean they listen. Lincoln is no I don't know when did it start. It's it's an eighteen eighty or I don't know thereabouts. It's been around forever. How do I know this? Is I was going through stuff yesterday. My dad started to support Arsenal in nineteen twenty seven. And I found all the articles that attracted him to follow Arsenal, and uh, you know magazines and cuttings from nineteen, um, you know, from the nineteen thirties, and company. You know, there were clubs like Preston and Huddersfield, all of those because the the whole economy was so different. Mm. So, um, but what I'm, about you know? I just what mm -hmm. about opening it or cloud uh, mm -hmm. crowdfunding it, Clive? Yeah, well, you know, as you mentioned, Sean and Ashley were the ones that came in originally with me. Uh, you know, we've had other South Africans uh, join in. Uh, Greg Levine, who works at Vitality in the UK, he's also come on the board. And then we've had a couple of other South Africans who Sean or Ashley knew, like Alon Aptierka, Alan Schwaden, who involved with Kiso, David Lipschitz. And they've also, you know, put in money. They haven't come on the board. And through those contacts, people knowing that we've been involved, uh, some have suggested, you know, uh, not to the extent that maybe some others have put in. Uh, what about, you know, giving us an opportunity to get involved with the club? So we actually are going out to some of those people, uh, basically South Africans, either living in South Africa or anywhere around the world other than the UK because some of the benefits that come with this membership is going to be able to get streaming of all the games uh, to people 
obviously outside the UK. And uh, yeah, they're putting in around £20,000 each. And yeah, it's just going from word to mouth. And uh, hopefully we're able to raise a bit of money there. We're also looking at uh, bringing in a US investor that we've made contact with, and that's been ongoing for a few months. But it's just the final formalities, and he should be investing in the club in the next couple of weeks. Well, even for those those who are not putting money behind you, they certainly could be pulling uh, for Lincoln City, uh, South, every South African second club, <laughs> or maybe some <laughs> South Africans first club like yours. Club. When are the playoffs? When when can we watch? Uh, the playoffs, oh, we're not sure which one, which night will kick off, but the first leg is on the 18th or 19th of May. Well, you know, we, we, told, our, we told our community to pull hard for my octopus teacher uh, on the 26th of April, and that helped. So here we go. We'll be with you on the 18th or 19th of May. Clive Nates, the hedge fund manager who's the chairman of the English football side, Lincoln City. You're listening to the Biz News Power Hour, brought to you by the team at biznews.com. Well, as promised earlier, we've now got Andre Salia to give us a little more insight into this, into the currency markets. Lots of interest in the RAND by every member of the Biz News community. So let's hear what Jackie and Andre have got to tell us this week. This currency focus is proudly brought to you by Treasury One. South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Welcome to the BizNews Currency Focus. I'm Jackie Cameron for BizNews. With me today is Treasury One currency analyst Andre Salier to share his insights on the value of the RAND. Andre, tell us what's been happening to the RAND since Friday. Well, since Friday, we had an interesting one in the sense that we've seen the US dollar retreating from the highs around the 121 level down to almost breaking the 120 level. That caused the RAND to retreat a little bit from the 1420, 1418 levels that was the best level seen last week, uh, right up into the sort of mid-50s almost. By this morning, we've seen some retreat again. Uh, and that's simply because we're seeing the dollar making some inroads or rather losing some of its value again and the euro picking up towards the one midst of the 120s. So a, a little bit of play around the area and the rand mostly being driven by what happens in the dollar. Market. Can you tell us how the rand's value is linked to the US dollar? Yes, it's not only linked to the US dollar. It's linked to a basket of currencies. And when you look at the value of the RAND, you should look more or less at what is our trading counterparts and what is our value of trade with our trading counterparts. All of those goes into a basket, and that really determines the value of the RAND. You know, it's so interesting that a lot of people still got this perception, you know, they read the newspapers about all the negativity that happens in the country. And then they want to link that to the RAND and decide the RAND should be weak or should be strong. Uh, generally, that creates a feeling of weakness, whilst we're seeing totally the opposite. And that's why 70% of what happens in the RAND market is really determined outside the borders of this country, linked to international situations. A lot of analysts bracing themselves for a challenging week for the RAND, with Reuters pointing out that there's a big week in the U.S. with an, an employment report. How does that U.S. employment report feed into the RAND? Well, the U.S. employment report feeds into the RAND simply because that tells us what happens in the American economy. The American economy, being the biggest economy in the world, has got a dramatic impact on the rest of the world and the outlook for the rest of the world. So if you see an American economy doing well, the general feeling is that we'll see the rest of the world economies doing well, and that will filter through into the emerging markets. More so, that if the rest of the world's going to do well, there's generally a risk-on situation, which simply means that people are more willing to put money into riskier investments of which the emerging market space is 
You can listen to the full interview with Treasury One currency strategist Andre Celia on Biz News Radio, which is available on all the major podcast channels. This currency focus was proudly brought to you by Treasury One, South Africa's leading treasury solutions company that unlocks financial value for your business. Well, we're very happy to have a new sponsor on our program. Uh, it is, though, telling us lots of uh, insights there, David, about the currency markets. How are you reading it? No, very much the same way. You know, it's it's dollar-driven. And uh, you've got to watch the dollar. If the dollar strengthens, uh, uh, the rand weakens and so forth and that. But, um, look, there's um, – I'm actually a dollar bull. And I think that if we listen to the inflation story, if inflation starts to kick up and U.S. rates start to kick up, uh, more money is going to flow into the U.S. which strengthen the dollar, which will weaken the rand. Nothing to do with what's happening in South Africa, but uh, more to do with what's happening in global markets. So I think, as Andre said, 70 percent is what happens outside of uh, our shores. Well, if it was dependent on what is happening in our country uh, we might have the rand might have taken an awful hammering today after the weekend disclosures by Aldorth Mbalati who is the founder and CEO of DNG Energy he joins us now Aldorth uh, you were one of the bidders for the risk mitigation uh, independent power uh, producer project. Let's just just put it one side. It's it's renewable energy. It's to help South Africa get over this hump at the moment. Your story will give shivers down the put shivers down the spine of pretty much anybody who wants to do business with South Africa. You're alleging and you're taking the Department of Mineral and uh, Mineral Resources and Energy to court to try and stop the award that was made because you allege there was corruption. Just take us through your story and, and what happened from the time you were asked to go to a restaurant in Pretoria. Uh, it's in your court uh, affidavit, but you went to a restaurant in Pretoria and were told certain things. Good evening, Alec, and good evening to everyone that is listening to this phenomenal show today. Uh, and Alec is right. My name is Aldweth Mbalati. I am from DNG Energy. And what we do is we come up with creative solutions on how to serve our people and make Africa better. We develop LNG infrastructure and we also develop renewable projects so that Africa can be on a growth path. <clears throat> so, yes, we did bid on the RMIPP program. In fact, we were the highest bidder in terms of the number of megawatts bid in the program. We bid for a total of 1,350 megawatts in the program. That is important to note. And we were going to be, we were fully compliant in terms of materially complying to the original RFQ that was issued. It is important to know that we are home-bred. We are not a BE company. We are black-owned, and we believe that in terms of local content ownership, we were majority-owned. So the bid at time of bid was uh, over 51% owned by a South African black firm. And um, we met all the requirements. So we believe that the process was fundamentally flawed in a sense that it prejudiced not us, but other parties that could have been in the program. Because never in the history of this country have you seen such a flagship program change its rules almost weekly in terms of changing it, in terms of as if it purports to favor one party over others. And had there been parties that uh, the rules were by the time the bid round finished or closed, a lot of other bidders, I believe, could have bid. And we are not saying that we are the parties with the best solution. We are saying that other parties that could have provided a great solution, even greater than us potentially, could have bid in this. All well, I'm I, saying I, I get that. Sorry, I get that. But really, what is of interest to us uh, is whether or not 
you are a sour grapes bidder or whether you have evidence that there was corruption in the awarding of this bid. And I think that's really what the what the some some will say. Shortly, the minister Montash is going to say, "Ah, oh, well, he was just uh, you know he didn't win. Uh, the Turk, Turks won. Uh, they're going to put this these power ships off the coast." Uh, Mr. Mbalati, uh, just just suck it up, move on. However, if you do have evidence of corruption, share it with us. The answer that I can give you is, we do not have sour grapes. If you read our court papers, we are diligent in putting our case across in terms of why we do not have sour grapes and why we believe that we should have won. Was the corruption at play in this process? The answer is yes, there was corruption at play. Do we have evidence of such? The answer is yes, we have evidence of such. So without creating a long paragraph answering your question directly, the answer is we do not have sour grapes. And yes, we believe that the process was not fair in terms of giving the rightful bidders what is theirs. Lord Peter Hayne is on your board. He is well known as a fighter against corruption. Did he motivate uh, your stance here in any way or support it? Peter Hayne is part of our non-executive directors. Before you take any legal action that has a material impact on the business, you need to consult with your board. And our board voted or advised us that it is prudent for us to take the route that we are taking. So it is not a unilateral decision that I have taken as Mbalati, but it is a decision that is supported by our full board. And you talk of a business associate and a familial relation of Gwede Mantash. Just unpack that for us. Alec, I would love to unpack that for you. I mean, it is, uh, it is one of the things that I'd like to delve deeper into and explain greater detail into. However, at this moment, uh, without uh, falling short to your listeners, is that we haven't had the answering affidavit from the minister and we haven't had our heads of argument prepared and we haven't sat in court and us ventilating our facts in full. It would be remiss of me in terms of uh, prejudicing other parties right now without having to uh, go through the full process of court. However, I can confirm to you today that there is malfeasance in the process and it is something that we will be ventilating as the process unfolds. I guess the question on that is to ask whether the people who met with you and wanted you to cross their palms with silver were indeed related to the Minister of Energy. If that's the case, well, then you've got a strong strong case. But if they are just chances, are you sure that they do have that close connection? Let me answer it, let me answer it in a different manner, Alec. We believe strongly in the merits of our case. And to explain how strongly we believe in the merits of our case, let me explain the gravity. This case has the potential of changing the course of South Africa. And it is not a decision that one takes lightly in terms of approaching the courts to say, hey, we need help. And secondly, it is a double-edged sword that if we are not confident that our case is strong enough, I am a young businessman and I do not want to destroy my chances of future success in this country of gaining the reputation that I took government because I had sour grapes. So you need to look at it from putting your share, your, yourself in our shoes to say that, Potentially, these chaps may have something, and we are confident that we have put in a solid case, and we are further 
to bolster ourselves by the further evidence that we put on the table in terms of solidifying the merits that we have on the table. So we do not have sour grapes, and we believe in the strength of the merits of our case that we are. We believe that we stand a very good chance that an objective party will find in our favor that there was malfeasance and it we were not properly adjudicated. Aldworth Mbalati is the founder and chief executive of DNG Energy. Uh, they were one of the bidders, and as you heard there, bid for 1,350 megawatts to inject into the grid through plants at Kamatipur, Malilan, and Kucha. Uh, they did not win that bid. The bid was given to a Turkish company called Car, Car Powership. Um, well, more than 60% of the bid was given to them, and the Turkish company is going to put ships off the sea. Now, we've heard from energy experts like Chris Yelland, who says this is craziness. Uh, Well, is it crazy? Is it corruption? The courts will decide. Still with the energy sector, we welcome Stephen Buchanan-Clark, who's head of Human Security and Climate Change Program at Good Governance Africa. Lovely talking with you, Stephen. We have been following here in South Africa, the insanity that seems to be going on in northern Mozambique with a Total natural gas project uh, where Total has now pulled all of its people out of that area because of violence, etc. You've just been up in Mozambique to have a look at a project that you've written a lot about. What did you find? Well, yeah, first, thanks for um, for having me, Alec, and to Biz News. Um, as you mentioned, I'm from Good Governance Africa. We're an NPO um, with based at, in, in uh, Rosebank, Johannesburg, uh, with satellite offices across the continent. Um, and we really uh, focus on governance issues, uh, transparency, um, fair allocation of resources. Um, like you mentioned, I hit up the Human Security and Climate Change Program, and um, over the last two to three years, we've already been focusing our analysis on um, the unfolding political and security dynamics in Mozambique. Like you mentioned, I was up there recently. Um, you know, I think uh, to, to summarize, I suppose, um, the insurgency has been three years now. Um, the Al-Suna Wajama, um, the, the organization perpetrating these attacks that have been in the news, um, seems to have grown in terms of its operational capacity and um, and its confidence um, over the last three years. Really, it started back in 2017 as um, uh, militia with uh, very rudimentary weapons. Um, they seem to have been strengthening, uh, strengthened over the last three years. And as I'm sure you're aware, the Palmer attacks um, uh, are... Uh, are indicative of that uh, growth and confidence. You know, currently um, the Mozambican government, uh, I think, really want, wants to take uh, ownership of the security response, but there are some very uh, deep, um, I think, structural problems with the Mozambican security services um, that they need to address. Um, there's also uh, cross-border dynamics that make uh, combating this type of insurgency very difficult. Um of course, the, the, the conflict has seen a escalating humanitarian crisis, which has to be dealt with sort of simultaneously, which makes things very difficult. Uh, they estimate about 600,000, 700,000 have been affected by the conflict um, in terms of in, uh, internally displaced persons. There's whole towns that are empty, islands off the coast of Cabo Dagala that are now empty. The government have uh, set up uh, IDP camps around Nampula and other places in the province. Um, but uh, funding, you know, there's multiple crises going on around the world, of course. So funding is very limited and, um, you know, and, and we see this deepening uh, humanitarian situation. Uh, Stephen, with, you know, you've, potential. you've given us a lot of uh, uh, big words there. Let's get to the small words. The Americans have said we'll send in the Marines. Mozambique has said no thank you. Now, if that's the case... Given the Americans are, are attacking terror, Al-Qaeda, etc., and this seems to be related, why would the Mozambicans who are not able to get Total to bring its people back uh, not accept American support? Um, I think the Mozambican government is um, very reticent to let in any international support. Um, 
you know, I think there's probably regional actors that, that, that would prefer if they had to bring in, um, bring in international support because they're worried that, um, you know, they want to control the, um, the allergy sector in the North. Um, they want to make sure that Mozambique stands to benefit the most. And, uh, um, you know, the, the, the Americans had agreed to send in a, um, green berets to provide special forces training. Um, that's not something new that, uh, that special forces training, um, took place last year as well. And the, the U S of course is engaged in, you know, bilateral security training with many African countries. Um, I don't think it was uh, fundamentally in response to the insurgency that that announcement took place. But there are uh, many commentators who say the reason why the Mozambican government is not wanting to get this thing sorted out is because the elite are benefiting. The elite want to have their share of whatever largesse is uh, going to be distributed by the French company Total. How much relevance is there to that suggestion? Um, yeah, I think, I mean, some of that holds water. Um, of course, they, you know, to understand the, the, the conflict in the north, you know, there is a political economy dimension. Um, and as we know, Mozambique's had, you know, some problems with uh, corruption and governance, uh, which um, has really challenged this energy investment. Um, you know, I think it's the, this lack of governance um, that really is, is, is behind the, the, this um, insurgency. Um, and, you know, the, the, uh, for Limo, has got its internal political dynamics that it's uh, currently dealing with. Um, so there's, uh, there's just a lot going on at the political level and the geopolitical level, which um, has made a coherent regional response to this very difficult. I'm sure the Total is wishing they'd never heard of Mozambique before, but they are in there. What will it take to get the company back uh, into the the northern uh, or into the Pemba uh, or the Cabo Delgado province? Yeah, well, they pulled out from the uh, Afungi, uh, the Afungi Peninsula. Um, originally, they had requested, uh, I think it was a 25 kilometer a perimeter of safety. Um, after the palm attacks, you know, that was, uh, that, um, you know, the, the severity of it, I think made them, um, renegotiate, uh, or rethink that their, um, actual Mozambique, but bear in mind, I mean, total signed decades long contracts. So it, over the long term, this could just be a small blip and, uh, you know, this force majeure while they have pulled out, um, if the situation can stabilize, um, I'm sure they will be willing to, to come back in. Um, but that's the challenge. I mean, after these palm attacks, the insurgents are well-equipped, well-resourced. Um, so I think uh, we will likely see more attacks, um, perhaps some even as significant as Palma in the coming months. Stephen Buchanan-Clark giving us some sobering news there from the biggest investment on the African continent, a, a multiple of the GDP in Mozambique, and now it's all on hold because of politics. Brightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity, and the markets aren't any different. The daily movements in the markets mean change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Justin? The JSEL share index started the week low at 66,600. The highlights included gold shares up across the board, the biggest climber being Anglo Gold up 10 Rand to 310 Rand a share. Sabanya Stillwater up a percent and a half to 69 Rand a share. MTN lost three and a half percent to a shade under 88 Rand. The food retailer you love to hate, Woolworths, lost 2.7% to 48 rand a share. And Berkshire Hathaway is up by 2% in New York this morning, following its AGM on Saturday. In the currency markets, the rand weakened against all the major currencies to 14 rand 38 to the dollar, 20 rand 3 cents to the pound, and 17 rand and 37 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,794 an ounce as inflation fears linger. Brent crude is up at $68 a barrel. And the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 835k a Bitcoin. Thank you, Justin. And this market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. David Shapiro, boy, democracy's got a long way to go in our continent. I, I, in fact, that, that's the question I was going to ask you. I'm saying 
there were no resolved issues tonight. You know, we didn't hear it in Mozambique. We didn't hear it with the Turkish story as well. There's so many unanswered questions that uh, that linger. And I don't know what the end game in all of this is, um, but it doesn't seem to be democracy. And I think we, you know, we need to make some sweeping changes if we're going to see democracy come in. Well, at least here in South Africa, we do have a constitutional democracy and we do have the courts. So someone like uh, Aldworth and Balati can take his case to the court. And it does, as he says, this is a, this will change the direction of the country, perhaps. But uh, we had at the Zondo Commission, the president saying, we like uh, cater deployment. It can work. It's a bit like we like communism. Yes, the Soviet Union has collapsed, but it can work well. We live and we live in hope forever. Thanks for being with us tonight. We look forward to being back in your company again tomorrow between 5.30 and 6.30 from the Biz News team. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour brought to you by the team at Biz News.